Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we are positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. My name is Kayla Fratt, and I'm a certified dog behavior consultant and the owner of Journey Dog Training. I'm also the author of two ebooks, one on polite greetings and another on aggressive behavior in dogs. Both of these are geared towards helping owners safely and effectively work through these problems. I also have two self-study courses available on my website, one for dogs with separation anxiety and another that's aimed to help kids and dogs get along. You can find all of my offerings at journeydogtraining.com shop. Today, my hosts and I are going to be talking about the no-kill animal shelter movement and its drawbacks. I'm going to let my co-hosts introduce themselves, starting with Ursa. Hi there, I'm Ursa Acri. I'm a certified dog behavior consultant, as well as a certified professional dog trainer, knowledge and skills assessed. And I'm the co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, Colorado. I help run the Canis Major Training Center in Denver, where we offer professional training for dogs and their people, including group classes, private training for behavior problems, board and train, and a variety of other services. You can find us online at canismajortraining.com. Hey guys, and I'm Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado. I offer in-home services to dogs and their people. So we work on anything from puppy concerns to basic obedience to fear and aggression. Um, and we are now expanding to online services with our uh, online courses launching next week, which is super exciting. Yeah, that is super exciting. And I just want to say before we get going that if there are problems with my audio in particular, I am currently recording from a hostel in Panama, which is the only decent Wi-Fi I could find. And there are um, boats and music and chatter happening behind me. So just pretend you're here with me. Uh, Enjoy the (laughs) ambiance. All three of us are intimately familiar with animal shelters. We've all worked in the behavior team of animal shelters at some point. So today's topic is really near and dear to all of our hearts. We're recording this in the direct and still evolving aftermath of a really upsetting situation that just happened in our home state of Colorado. We're going to talk about the no-kill movement in general, but we're also going to dive a little bit into the specifics as far as we know them currently of the situation in Pueblo, Colorado. I'm gonna let Ursa go over the history of what's going on in that shelter. Thanks, Kayla. Um, So to understand what happened in Pueblo, we have to go back in time a little bit. Um, All of the information that I have here is thanks to an article from CARE.DO that we'll link to in the show notes. Um, But in February of 2018, Pueblo passed the Pueblo Animal Protection Act, known as PAPA, which mandated that the local shelter, the municipal shelter, had to have a live release rate of 90%. And what that means, a live release rate means that 90% of the animals who enter the shelter needed to leave alive, either through adoptions, return to owner, or transfers to other shelters. So 90% of the animals that come in their door have to make it out alive. Um, this is par- partially pushed through after a few high-profile dogs, um, primarily really long-stay dogs with serious behavioral concerns were euthanized at the shelter. And that often, I've seen that before, um, create sort of a public outcry uh, and, and push for movement towards that um, higher mandated live release rate. Um, so challenges with the legislation are, are many um, because what happens is it, ends up putting the focus on a number, um, kind of an arbitrary number, rather than uh, allowing the shelter to consider the welfare of each animal. And so we'll go into that um, more in depth later in the episode. But um, 
The problem is that the legislation isn't there in the shelter looking at these animals with behavioral health issues. Um, it's just, again, sort of creating this arbitrary goalpost to meet without regard to, um, you know, the day in, day out considerations and concerns for what that actually looks like. And as we've seen with, uh, you know, particularly most recently this case in Pueblo, um, the reality of that can be much different than what people think of when they hear no kill. Um, so starting in January 1st of 2019, so just recently, uh, Paws for Life, which was a local rescue, is a local rescue, took over the Pueblo Animal Shelter um, after they put in a bid to take the contract. And the Humane Society of Pikes Peak Valley had been operating the shelter for 16 years, but the Pueblo City Council decided to take uh the contract from Pause for Life because it would save the city about five hundred thousand dollars compared to um, South, or I'm sorry, compared to Pikes Peak Valley. So we're now recording on April second, which is just about three months later, and there was recently a state inspection of the shelter um, under the Pause for Life. Um, purview, and they found some pretty deplorable conditions. So long story short, Pause for Life is no longer operating the shelter in Pueblo. Um, so Marissa, can you tell us just a little bit about what was found there during the inspection? Absolutely, Ursa. We're pulling our information from an article by the Pueblo Chieftain, which again, we'll link to in the show notes. We're not going to list out every single bullet point that they go through, considering that it's really long and it's actually kind of heartbreaking to discuss, but we are going to talk about some of the main points. Animals were found both sick and healthy housed together. This is a significant issue because this could lead to an, an outbreak or something really challenging throughout the entire population of the animals in care. Animals were in need of veterinary care, including a cat with bloody drool coming from his mouth, another with a contorted face, and a dog unable to stand. Animals with documented health concerns were untreated for days. One cat, which apparently hadn't been fed in a month, waited nine days to see a vet. It eventually died on the table. A dog impounded after he bit a woman on the face and arm was documented as not being up to date on rabies vaccination which is a huge problem. An employee took the dog, which was supposed to be on quarantine. So usually when a dog um, bites another person, they have to be on quarantine for 10 days uh, per the state. So that employee decided to ignore the quarantine and take that dog on what they considered a socialization walk. During that walk, he nearly bit a customer service rep on the face and the dog also tried to attack a smaller dog. The shelter was in deplorable conditions, as Ursa mentioned. Lots of rooms were not cleaned, um, dried urine on the floor, and all of this can lead to disease, which, like I said earlier, infects the entire population. Lastly, animal enclosures were unsafe and potentially dangerous, with spaces too small for animals to be housed there. So, yikes. Now that we've covered what's going on in Pueblo, let's bring it back to our, our own experiences and why this matters to us. This will help us explain where we're coming from before we discuss our opinions about this matter and how this disaster relates to the no-kill movement as a whole. So Kayla, tell us a little bit about your background. 
Sure. Um, so I probably have the least experience of anyone in our group. Um, when I was a brand new trainer, I did a little bit of volunteering with the All Breed Rescue and Training Group in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And that rescue group specializes in pulling dogs that are about to be euthanized for behavioral issues and then training them and getting them adopted out. Um, and they have a lot of success with that. They've got a lot of professional trainers on staff. So it was a great place for me to learn. And they are a no-kill rescue. So when they have had dogs come through that... Um, they're unable to get adopted out because the behavior concerns ended up being too severe. They will hold on to those dogs in foster homes or in um, they've got a really nice cattle setup and those dogs get really well cared for until they can get moved on to a sanctuary which doesn't happen often. So I have been on kind of that end of the spectrum. Um, and then more recently, I worked under Marissa at the Denver Dumb Friends League as a behavior technician. So my whole job there was basically I would get a list of animals in the morning who had behavioral concerns ranging from cats who were just stressed out and needed a little bit of R&R in the shelter to dogs that needed some pretty serious socialization before they could get adopted. And my job was to go out and work with those animals for um, four 10-hour days a week. Um, um, and DFL, as we're going to talk about, is um, is an open admission shelter that sees a huge volume of animals every year, but does some really amazing work to still keep up their adoption rates. Um, so that's that's my main experience. And we're going to talk quite a bit about um, DFL because we've all worked there at some point. <laughs> so, Ursa, do you want to do you want to tell us your your experience next? Yeah. Um, so I have quite a bit of experience in sheltering, um, not as recent. Um, I started as the behavior manager for the Kentucky Humane Society in 2007, and KHS is um, the largest shelter in that area. Uh, they are privately funded. They're not municipal, um, but they are open admissions. And in my capacity as behavior manager there, I actually was primarily focused on um, the public side. So uh, in 2007, you know, I think um, I think we've come a long way since then, and now a lot of uh, more well-funded shelters have behavior teams to work on the internal side, which is animals that come in with behavior issues, and KHS does as well. But at the time, it was pretty nascent, so I was in charge of essentially helping adopters who had ended up with animals that had behavior issues. Um, and then during the first part of my time there, I was kind of also the go-to person for internal behavior concerns. So if an animal came in uh, and was um, behind the scenes with behavior problems, um, it was my job to sort of uh, triage what I felt was treatable and manageable with our very, very limited resources and what I felt was not. Um, at, during my time there, they actually hired a second person, a very, very good friend of mine, Kat Rooks, who now runs their entire behavior program, and she's brilliant. Um, but uh, they began to develop the internal side quite a bit more, including um, teams of volunteers that would help with, um, you know, enrichment and, and some basic behavior training and that sort of thing. And now they have a full-fledged um, behavior center where they work on um, issues with uh animals who come in that have that need more extensive help. So from there, I was there for about three and a half years. From there, I was hired as the behavior manager for the Dumb Friends League here in Denver. And um, I was there for about two years. And my role there was 
um, quite a bit different than at Kentucky Humane, where I actually oversaw a team of eight staff and over 100 volunteers. And our primary focus was internal, meaning the animals that came into the shelter who needed behavior help, ranging from literally just basic manners, like this animal can go right up on the adoption floor, but it would be nice if they were a little less rude, like jumping on people and that sort of thing, all the way up to um, bite cases. And um, I was responsible not just for um, making decisions or recommending um, animals needed to be euthanized for behavior issues, but also performing euthanasia. So I saw both sides of it and I um, really had full responsibility for those decisions from start to finish. Um, I also, while there, did um, a relief trip. I took some staff to a shelter, a rural shelter in Tuscaloosa, which I was talking to Marissa about a little bit earlier before we started recording, uh, to help them from the fallout of the tornado that went through in 2011, I believe. Um, and then I, I did a brief stint after I was the behavior manager. I did a brief stint on the um, mobile spay neuter unit there as well. Um, and then was uh, hired in um, Topeka with Hills Pet Nutrition to do some behavior work at their nutritional research center. And during my time there, I also volunteered in the behavior department of the Helping Hands Humane Society in Topeka. And they are also an open admission shelter, although not to the scale that um, the Dumb Friends League is. So I've had um, my hands in a lot of pies in terms of sheltering and, and been involved um, directly either as a staff member or volunteer for a long time. And then since moving back to Denver, have been um, partnered with, uh, just as a trainer who now works in the private sector, I've partnered with a local rescue to help their um, foster homes and their volunteers through behavioral concerns with the dogs in their care. So it's very, very near and dear to my heart and, and um, you know, something that even though I've left the field in terms of it being my career, I've stayed really close to because I think it's, as a trainer, it's inseparable because, you know, the people we see are getting their animals from shelters. So we're still in it, even if we're not, even, even if we're not working in it. Um, so, uh, Marissa, sorry for kind of going on there, but no, it's <laughs> awesome. I think I, I learned a few new things about you. That was kind of fun. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I copy them too. I work at Dumb Friends. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so my my story is I started at the Humane Society of Boulder Valley in Boulder, Colorado, and probably one of one of the best shelters I think to start out your career because um, they have a very innovative behavior and training department serving both the the animals in the care, but then also uh, a really great resource to the people and pets of the public. And so I started there and um, was their behavior and training coordinator and then um, moved to California and was the director of behavior and training at East Bay SPCA. And East Bay SPCA was a limited admission shelter. And so we've been throwing around open admission and now we're throwing around limited admission. I just wanted to define those. So um, at East Bay SPCA, we would have a person bring in their animal at time of um, owner surrender. So when they could no longer take care of their animal and we would do an evaluation and, and try to see if this would be a good animal for our program. And sometimes that animal was not a good animal for our program. And so we would give them other resources or other shelters to go to. Um, that controls the, the type of population that we're bringing into our facility, um, which can lead to 
higher live release rate percentages. So if I'm only taking in super lovely, um, behaviorally sound animals into my facility, then I'm most likely going to, going to adopt them out. Whereas, or in comparison to Dumb Friends League, we are an open admission shelter and we will take anything, which I am really proud of, I know that Ursa and Kayla are probably really proud of, that we are able to be a significant resource to the community. And it's because we have a lot of financial funding. Um, and East Bay SPCA, they were limited admission, and I don't find any fault in that either. I think you have to, as a shelter, understand who you're serving, what resources you have, both financially um, and emotionally and, and, and staff wise. So, um, I have seen the complete opposite of being limited or being sp more specific in my criteria of intake of animals to open admissions, which is what Dumb Friends League is. And so when you're open admission and if you're taking in anything, you are taking in some really challenging behavior or medical concerns, which we think is appropriate to euthanize on some level. Um, and so there are some animals that are relatively dangerous or there are some animals that are medically compromised that um, performing humane euthanasia is the most comfortable thing for, for that animal. So, um, you know, just as it relates to this, this topic, I just wanted to define those, those two options. Um, I basically copied Ursa. So everything she said about her behavior manager position um, is what I did as well. I was fortunate enough to have Kayla on the behavior team. She added amazing insight and uh, really provided a lot of great uh, information and education to the behavior team. So we were thrilled to have her and devastated when we lost her. Um, <laughs> and now I have a really uh, exciting new position at Dumb Friends League where I am the community liaison and I'm going out to shelters in rural Colorado to help elevate the animal welfare in those communities. And that can include providing financial resources, um, emotional resources, staff resources, um, access to collaborative um collaborative efforts, um, access to funding and, um, education. A lot of these folks are not necessarily, um, they don't necessarily have the tools that they need to, to, to run a shelter appropriately and they're looking for support and we're able to give them that support, which is really great. So, um, so yeah, so that's the three of us in a nutshell. All right, so now we're going to take a minute to hear from one of our sponsors. And when we get, get back, we're going to talk about some of the challenges with the no-kill movement and how um, we would like to see the sheltering community move forward together. This episode was sponsored by Canine of Mine, an online dog care resource that aims to provide owners with all the info that they need to be better pet parents. Canine of Mine has a ton of great resources from adoption guides and dog food recommendations to breed profiles and training tips. And a lot of those training tips are actually written by yours truly, Kayla. I actually worked on the dog adoption guide and it's pretty awesome and it actually relates to what we've been talking about today in this episode as far as figuring out what you need, what you really want, and what are kind of bonus points for your potential dog. And it includes a downloadable spreadsheet that I used when I was looking through dogs and trying to find Barley. And Barley scored 99 out of 100 on it, I think. And, um, you know, in my opinion, he's perfect. Um, and it gives you a guide to creating your own um, kind of score sheet for figuring out what you want, what you need in a dog, and how to find a dog that meets your needs um, and your desires that way. So Canine Mine also 
focuses on a ton of other really common frequently asked questions for dog owners, ranging from what to do when your dog eats a diaper to what kind of dog is best for owners who love running marathons. Canine of Mine is a fantastic resource for any dog owner looking to take better care of their canine, and you can check them out at canineofmine.com, which is spelled with the letter K and number 9 of mine.com. And we are back. So the first challenge of the no-kill movement that I think we want to address is talking about what Marissa mentioned right before we left, which is kind of the difference between open admission and limited admission. And one of the things that is important to point out here is that there is a place for open admission shelters in almost every community. Um, if every shelter in a community is limited admission, it's going to end up being really, really difficult for someone to find a place for their animal if their animal has significant um, behavioral or medical concerns. So it's really, really important in my opinion, and I think an opinion that my co-hosts share, to have some open admission shelters in every region. That doesn't mean that there isn't a place for a limited admission shelter, like Marissa was saying with the East Bay, Bay SPCA and what I was saying about all breed rescue and training is one of the advantages of being a limited admission is you have the potential to help a specific subset of animals in a more in-depth way. You can be a specialist instead of a generalist. But if you don't have any open admission shelters anywhere near you, you might end up being turned away, leaving you with really few options if you need to rehome your animal for some reason. And generally, the least adoptable animals are going to be turned away, which forces those people to go to open admission shelters and kind of turns on this domino effect where... I'm not able to give my aggressive dog up to the limited admission shelter, so I go to the community open admission shelter down the road, and that animal is unlikely to be adopted because he's got significant behavior concerns, and then that pushes up that shelter's euthanasia rate, which could in turn turn the community against that shelter because the community is upset that that shelter has such a high euthanasia rate. So it can kind of spiral out of control, um, and there is potentially a detriment to a large community shelter turning towards being limited admission, which often it comes together with no kill. Um, it's very, very difficult and potentially kind of impossible to do a good job of being open admission and quote unquote no kill at the same time. Yeah, considering that the open admission shelters are literally taking in anything that comes through the doors, like Marissa mentioned. Um, and that means if you're open admissions and no kill, you're taking in everything from, you know, right. the immediately adoptable animals to the worst behavior and, and health issues. So, Right. Um, and it's important which, to make sure that a shelter isn't just taking in, you know, these super adorable, fluffy, eight-week-old puppies. Um, and there needs to be a place for someone to take their animal. Um, one of the stories that I always tell people when I'm talking about my stance on limited admission, open admission, no-kill... Um, all of these different things within sheltering is when I was relatively new at Dumb Friends League, um, it was Christmas Eve and we had a dog, or I was working Christmas Day, I guess, um, and we had a dog that had been left in an overnight kennel on Christmas Eve. Um, he was a little bully mix of some sort, big blockhead, tiny waist, um, and there was a note that had been left with this dog that he had um, bitten their two-year-old son to the point where the son was spending Christmas in the ICU with something like 17 stitches 
Um, and my job was to go through and work with all the dogs that were on bike quarantine that day. So I was giving them enrichment, um, doing some training with them through the kennel door to make sure that they didn't just spend 10 days pacing back and forth in a cell. Um, and this dog, literally the only training I could do with him, and I worked with him for his whole 10-day bike quarantine, um, was just walk by and toss treats. Um, and I never got him to the point where he stopped barking, growling, and lunging at me. Um, and the fact of the matter is that if you're not going to euthanize that dog, that dog, I mean, there, it's, it seems kind of un irresponsible to potentially put that dog back out into the community, which we're going to talk about. But I think it's important to remember that shelters are faced with some of these horrific decisions where you get a dog in like that, who was a physically healthy, I'm maybe two years old. Um, but yeah, and that dog sticks with me to this day because, I mean, I don't think that euthanizing of him was the wrong decision at all, but I don't understand what we were supposed to do with him if we didn't euthanize him. Yeah. So when those kinds of animals do come in to an open admission, but no kill shelter, um, and so euthanasia is not an option, what ends up happening is often that they are just warehoused there um, for an indefinite period of time or sometimes for the rest of their lives until um, either they pass away naturally or a decision is made to humanely euthanize due to old age. Um, so, you know, warehousing is something that, you know, we've all seen, I would say I've seen it relatively often and, and to varying degrees. Um, but essentially, again, animals just kept in the shelter indefinitely or, or until they're adopted out, which that brings its own challenges. Because if you have um, an animal that is uh, behaviorally or physically unhealthy, um, that's not being treated, a lot of the time it can get worse in the shelter because um, the shelter is a stressful environment for everyone. I mean, even the best shelters are stressful for animals to be in because it's foreign, it's noisy, there are lots of animals in a relatively small space, there's nothing familiar, um, things are often unpredictable. It's a stressful environment. So if you take an animal that already has behavior challenges and put them into an environment that is relatively high stress, um, that can exacerbate those issues. It can also cause, long-term warehousing can also cause stereotypical behaviors um, like pacing or incessant barking or um, even self-harm in some cases. Um, and that in turn makes these animals even less adoptable. <laughs> so it's almost like you get into this terrible catch 22 where like the longer they stay, the worse they get, the less likely they are to be adopted. And so the longer they stay. Um, and then, you know, you get to a point where would you, is it really ethical to even adopt this animal to someone with these particular behavior challenges? And Marissa will talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but, um, again, it just gets you into this really terrible catch 22. Um, and then, you know, in terms of um, those issues being treated, some some shelters have no resources to even treat them, even if they wanted to. Um, so warehousing these animals can also create a risk to, this, to the staff if they're not skilled to handle, skilled enough to handle animals with behavior issues. Um, right. And even if they are skilled enough, I, I oh, mean, sure. I don't think any of us loved working those dogs that had multiple bite histories, even though that was our job and we're pretty skilled professionals. I can't yeah, even imagine absolutely. being a volunteer kennel tech um, yeah, in a exactly. shelter that didn't have more resources. 
And and so again, you know, you're you're warehousing an animal that's a risk to staff, that's a risk to any potential adopters. Um, and, uh, and, you know, just long-term, that's not a situation that's going to get better. Um, so, you know, again, I think that's one of the main challenges that we're seeing that is a symptom of sort of the no-kill philosophy is just animals that are hanging out in shelters or rescues or foster homes indefinitely. And, you know, sanctuary is they're few and far between. And I think I might be bringing up a point that we're going to cover later on, but um, I feel like it kind of goes hand in hand with the warehousing issue. A lot of people will say like, well, send it to a sanctuary, send it to best friends, send it to wherever. But the reality of the situation is that space is limited too. Um, and sanctuaries have to be able to handle animals and keep them in humane conditions and be able to provide for their care without also putting people at risk. So even the most dangerous animals, that might not be an ish, uh, an option for them. And for animals that aren't a risk, that are just deemed unadoptable, um, it still might not be an option because it is really the space in sanctuaries is really limited. And, you know, there are a lot of sanctuaries that quickly switch over to hoarding situations too, because the demand on them is so great that they can't handle it. So that comes with its right. own and, set of challenges. And everyone's and people, coming from this with coming to this from a place of having huge hearts. They want to help as many animals as they yeah, can. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. You just I have would, to know your limits. <laughs> I can't, I can't imagine the emotional, stress of trying to run a sanctuary and constantly being inundated with requests to take animals that you just do not have space for. Um, right. Right. So yeah. again, we're still, you know, by not choosing to euthanize, by not taking the responsibility to euthanize animals in directly in our care that are not suitable pets that can't really reasonably be adopted out to a home. We're still putting that responsibility off onto other organizations, whether it's open admissions, whether it's sanctuary, whether it's, you know, the home that, that does end up adopting them, it is still kind of passing the buck for that. So, um, and so Marissa, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, just the effect that sort of ripple effect of putting dangerous behaviorally risky animals out into the community rather than choosing to euthanize them. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about passing the buck. It's like, let's just pass the buck to an adopter. Like that, that's the mindset that some of these organizations are operating from that like, okay, as long as we get this animal out alive and we yep. get it to a person, whether that's a rescue group or whether that's uh, a person of the community, that will help our live release rate. But the question that they're not asking themselves is, is that animal appropriate enough to be out in the community? So earlier we were talking about that dog that had a bite history. It bit, um, it almost bit someone in the shelter and then it tried to attack a small dog. A question that I ask people a lot is, do you want to live next door to that dog? So that dog gets out from the backyard. I mean, that inevitably happens. Um, that dog kills a small dog in your neighborhood. Um, that is, we. It, th these are not necessarily like hypothetical situations. These are situations mm -hmm. that we see at Dumb Friends League all the time when, when owners are surrendering animals to us. And so I think it's really important. And that we see as trainers too. All three of yeah. us have seen this stuff yeah, I was just going to say that like Ursa, Kayla and I, um, I think it's really rare and really awesome that we have worked in shelters having had private practice experience because we are from the we are seeing it from the beginning end to the end when when the person actually gets the animal into their home. And 
we have all, I'm sure you guys can attest to this, have had some really heart-wrenching cases where people are really committed to this animal, but they have decided that this animal is unsafe for them to keep in their home. I mean, I have two cases like that right now where um, animals are escalating to biting people that are coming over. Um, and and that is a liability not only for the dog owner, but just the entire community. And so... Um, it is hard to make these decisions. However, we have to take into consideration not only the animal, but also public safety and the risk there therein. Um, that doesn't mean that we're not taking risks because I do think that we are adopting out some some more challenging animals um, at Dumb Friends League. I think that we are we are asking our adopters to take on a lot, um, and some of them are really successful and some of them are not. Um, right, but and it doesn't mean we always get it right. Totally. Yeah. Mm, like we're trying sure. to make the best educated guesses per our knowledge, per our um, professional experiences, per our community. I think that's really important, too. Like if everybody is coming in from your community and taking a look at your inventory and saying, oh, wow, I don't want any of these dogs because all of them have behavior issues. You might be selling the wrong animal to or like selling the wrong thing to you're, to the community. If the community is not wanting animals with behavior concerns, then how are we supposed to find those animals a home? Fortunately, in Denver, we have a lot of folks that are really interested in in supporting animals that need behavior counseling or so on and so forth. However, not everybody wants to walk into a facility and get a project dog. And some people say they want a project dog. And then when they live with a project dog, it is something very different. So I think it's our responsibility as professionals to make sure that we are placing safe animals into the community and however that is defined for your organization, because safe is such a very arbitrary label. Um, I think it's really important as the organization to define that. Um, and I think it's important that we are educating all staff from your behavior staff to the adoption staff to intake staff, what we need to say to the adopters so that they understand what they are taking home. That's, that's really, really important. Well, and one thing I want to point out is that as a professional who who sees clients, I am often really, really impressed with how dedicated my clients are to wanting to help their dogs with um, yeah. behavior issues, um, you know, with severe behavior issues that I, as a professional, wouldn't want to live with. Totally. Um, but at the same time, I think that most of the clients who are dealing with these more severe behavior problems, if they could go back in time, if they knew that that was going to be a problem before they adopted the dog, they probably would not have opted to take it on. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and they're very commendable in that, like, this is the dog that I've got and I'm dedicating, um, my time and resources to helping resolve these issues. But I think if they had known beforehand, like, oh, your dog is going to try to bite strangers who come into your house, they probably would have been like, pass, thanks. I'll, yeah. I'll check somebody else out. For sure. <laughs> so, sure. you know, and I, think I think everyone's got a different definition of what sort of project dog would kind of be yeah. okay with them. Like, right. I know right. Ursa and I, we worked with that one, um, the clients with the husky, um, the elder, the elderly couple. Oh, Do you yeah, remember yeah, that? Yeah. Yep. 
I do. That husky would not necessarily have been a really, really tough project dog in a different home. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that's one of the things that we always have to be thinking about on the sheltering end is potentially the husky that was found as a stray who had not been neutered until he was four years old is going to be a really tough dog for um, a retired <laughs> a couple, couple who yeah, don't have a fence. Yeah. Did you just say husky and elderly couple? Because I, yes. I sort of I did. me there. I did. <laughs> I did. And they, and they were border collie people and they were used to the border collie oh, sort yeah. of off-leash behavior, which is the polar opposite of husky Total. off-leash behavior. Right. <laughs> but this dog would have been an amazing pet for someone who was really excited about running with their dog. Yeah. Um, and yeah. yeah, it's something we always need to be thinking about. That's kind of related to the dangerous dog thing. Cause as we said, everyone's got their own definition of what's a yeah. problem. I what's don't have project? children and I'm not planning on it. So a dog who exclusively has issues with small children is not a huge issue for me versus Ursa has a four year old. So even yes. though she's a professional, <laughs> she's not going to take on a dog who's got issues with kids. No way. Absolutely not. Yeah, no way. absolutely not. One other thing I wanted to add in here, and I know Marissa has one more thing to say before we move on to our next point, is the idea of the domino effect. And I first was introduced to this when um, I read, I think it's Trish McMillan's article titled The Perils of Placing Placing Marginal Dogs, which showed up in the IABC journal in winter 2017. And what she talks about there is the idea of a dog that's kind of iffy going out into the shelter, um, going out and getting adopted, and the ripple effect that that dog can have as far as perception of the community shelter. So this particular dog that's talked about in the article um, had some pretty serious dog aggression and actually ends up sending at least one dog to the hospital. And what she talks about is obviously that's very upsetting for the owners of both the dog that was sent to the hospital and the people who adopted this dog hoping for a lovely pet. But she also talks about, do you think the co-workers of the people who had this recently adopted but super dog aggressive dog really were excited to go to the shelter next time they were looking for a dog mm-hmm. when they hear about the, the mental and emotional pain and suffering, the physical um difficulty of a dog like that and the financial hardships of owning a dog like that um it's really important for us to look beyond just that one dog that we want to get adopted out and think about what the co-workers and the friends and the family and the neighbors are going to think about shelter dogs in general if they end up living next to a dog like this because that can really end up harming the sheltering community as a whole when we feed into that perception that shelter dogs are broken or dangerous and that's not true but the more we push out these really challenging dogs, we are at risk for creating that sort of perception, which doesn't help other dogs get adopted out later. Yeah, I love that you're talking about, you know, looking at sort of the one versus the many, right? And and making sure that we are um, making appropriate decisions there and having that domino effect because yeah, we, we want people to go to shelters and we want this experience to be positive so that their association to a shelter is positive. Um, one last thing I want to say that, that sort of ties back into what Ursa mentioned earlier in terms of the sanctuaries and, um, people sort of warehousing animals for the sake of a arbitrary live release rate. Um, Having seen a lot of shelters, I think what's really important is that um, your organization determines what you mean when you say you're working with an animal. Um, As a professional dog trainer, Ursa and Kayla included, just keeping the animal in your care 
and exposing it to whatever you think is appropriate to people or dogs is not really working the animal. And I think that that's, that's important that you have a clear, detailed training plan that is identifying your goals for these animals because far too many times I have gone into a shelter and they said, well, we just need to work with it more. And they actually cannot define what that means. And, um, that I think creates more suffering for the animal. And it it's, we're sort of like going nowhere fast when we're just using a label of working or air quotes, working with the animal. So we really want to encourage um, organizations to reach out to other organizations that have uh, established behavior programs um, that can sort of mentor you through that process um, or, you know, develop a relationship so you can transfer that animal to get the appropriate help that they need instead of just thinking that having that animal be present in the shelter is going to ultimately like change their behavior because most of the time it does not. Um, so I just wanted to really make sure that if you're listening and you are a smaller facility to please reach out to your, your local or, um, other resources because we, we want to be able to provide all animals support that way. So speaking about collaboration, reaching out, here's our next point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that is a really good point, Marissa. I had never even thought of um, the idea that you can kind of fool yourself into thinking that you're working with an animal, but if you don't have a plan, you're not doing anything. Um, yeah, it's amazing to me how many so, shelters will say, "Oh, well, we're we're working with it," and I'll say, "Oh, what does that look like?" And they don't really know, and so it's like, "Oh, okay, well, what are we doing yeah. then?" It lives under somebody's yeah. desk during the day and then goes back into its kennel at night. Yeah, not and yeah. that's not even happening. I wish that was happening or something. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of community and kind of building, building coalitions, I think one of the biggest problems, um, in my opinion, with the kind of no kill movement, and this does not mean no kill shelters specifically. This is kind of the online rabid version of the no kill movement is um, villainizing. And that is where if a single, if a shelter euthanizes a single animal, that was a tough decision and that gets publicity in the wrong way, that shelter can be, I mean, in the case of Pueblo Animal Shelter, it was literally like shut down, handed, um, there was laws passed and there were new, um, new people brought in to run the shelter because of one questionable case. I don't know the specifics of that case, but I do know that we've had dogs while I worked at DFL that if kind of the wrong reporter or the wrong activist Mm -hmm. got just enough detail about a given dog, I could see it being very easy to villainize the shelter online and they don't know the whole story. Um, And again, as we were talking about earlier, open admission shelters are really forced to take in those overflow animals. Um, As I was talking about earlier, the dog who sent the toddler to the ICU on Christmas Eve, um, many of those dogs are unadoptable and are realistic, good candidates for euthanasia because they just don't have other options. Um, So as we were talking about earlier, if one shelter in the community does change to no-kill, it puts a lot more pressure on those other shelters to cause the community to perceive the other shelters as quote-unquote bad. And it can create this us-versus-them mindset that really is not helpful um, for anyone. Because if 
one shelter is unwilling to work with the other because of the online vitriol that's being thrown around it doesn't help the animals at the end of the day and we don't want open admission shelters to catch scorn online and really in person protesters whatever for being quote unquote high kill um and again you you have to assume when you're reading things that the shelter that decided to euthanize an animal was doing what they believed was necessary based on the the whole story because you don't have the whole story and based on the situation in the shelter at that moment um, and you have to remember that anyone who works in a shelter and this is true of the people at Pueblo Animal Shelter that we're talking about right now that we're not very happy with they were doing what they thought was best for those animals and they were really doing the best that they could and they love those animals so it's really important to remember that whether you're looking at a warehousing situation or a euthanasia decision that you disagree with those people did that because they thought it was what was going to be best mm-hmm. yeah i think it's important to note that um and you know between the three of us we've seen a, a lot in animal sheltering but uh, you know speaking from my experience i've seen many many different shelters the insides of many many different shelters and i've never i've never met someone who worked in an animal shelter because they didn't care Um, And yes, there is compassion fatigue and there's burnout and people make bad decisions um, sometimes. But at the end of the day, I do, I prefer to give um, anyone in sheltering and rescue the benefit of the doubt that they are doing it because they care whether or not our, you know, our approaches are the same or we see eye to eye on everything. I'm still going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're doing this because they care. And I think that if we can come from that place and start in that place, um, we're, you know, a little bit, at least a step ahead from like, well, you know, I care and you don't, (laughs) which is not going to get us anywhere. (laughs) So, um, you know, ultimately I think that, uh, the main, the main point that the three of us agree on is that really with sheltering resources being limited, um, you know, and there's that joke, it's not pie, everybody can get a share. Well, unfortunately, resources in the shelter are pie. And if one if one place gets a slice, then that's less pie for the other <laughs> the other animals. And so with, with resources being limited, um, this is just not the hill to die on right now because um, if we are pouring resources into these animals that are really difficult to adopt and that are not good adoption candidates, we're taking resources away from animals that are good adoption candidates. So what we really need is triage. We need to stop with the animals that are healthy, adoptable animals with minor or no behavior and medical issues. And they need to be prioritized um, before the animals that are gonna be the project animals or the risky animals or the ones that we have to ask, you know, is there a good home for this animal? Is there a safe home for this animal? And one thing that I feel really strongly about is that, uh, and sort of piggybacks on Marissa's point from earlier, shelters need qualified behavior staff. Um, not, and you know, experience is not expertise. So I know a lot of people in sheltering that think, well, I've been around animals all my life, so I know how to modify behavior. And that's not always the case. And I'm sure you guys have seen it too in the shelter where somebody has an opinion about what needs to be done. And as a behavior professional, you're just like, oh my gosh, like that's not, not what we need to be doing. Wait, I think, Marissa, Arthur, you- was it you that made the joke like, 
like folks that are like, well, I've had dogs all my life. And you're like, well, how many have you had? And they're like, two. And you're like, well, I have teeth. That doesn't, all my life, it doesn't make me a dentist. Or right. Had, right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That experience, <laughs> experience isn't expertise. And so shelters need qualified behavior staff who are educated in modern best practices, who are educated in learning theory and dog body language and behavior change protocols um, to be able to standardize what they're doing with these animals so that they have ways to assess and measure progress and see behavior change or not and make those those decisions in a pragmatic and systematic way. And that will increase the public's trust. Because if the shelter can point to, this is what we do, this is how we assess behavior, this is how we treat behavior, this is how we make decisions about behavior, rather than like, well, we're just kind of winging it over here, that's going to increase the public's trust so that when a decision does have to be made to euthanize an animal, they can be given the benefit of the doubt. Well, they know what they're doing, and they've done this in a systematic way and made this decision in a pragmatic way, um, not at random or from emotion or et cetera. Um, so we, you know, again, healthy, adoptable animals need to be prioritized. And then the overall welfare of the animal needs to be considered, not just the arbitrary number. Um, and, you know, again, as we've touched on, we have to weigh the risk to the shelter, to the staff, to the community, and to the animal itself. And all the welfare of all parties involved needs to be considered when decisions are being made about whether to um, place an animal or whether to euthanize. Um, you know, again, uh, open admissions shelters really need our support, not our scorn. So um, instead of demonizing them for making these decisions, volunteer, donate, um, push to pass legislation that gives them more resources and allows them to make these um, choices from a place of um, pragmatism, not from a place of desperation. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, the three of us believe that there are outcomes worse than death. So I know that my first priority, um, you know, when I was employed in the humane field and as a trainer are um, to reduce suffering and to prevent suffering wherever possible. Like I want to prevent suffering in the animals that I work with and in the people that I work with. And to that end, um, in my opinion, there are things that are worse than humane euthanasia, including allowing an animal to suffer for the rest of its life or including putting that suffering onto a family that just wanted a companion animal. Um, and Amen, I sister. <laughs> I think that really is that a fundamental that really is a fundamental difference in philosophy between mm -hmm. people who are really entrenched in no kill philosophy totally. and you know other and the and the rest of us um, that there are just things that are worse than death and we would rather see an animal be humanely euthanized than suffer either physically or psychologically um, and Kayla you know you made a good point about that doesn't mean that all tough cases are euthanasia cases. Um, we work with tough cases all the time and I never put euthanasia on the table as a first option, never. Um, especially if no behavior modification has ever been done with an animal. That means that there's progress to be made. But again, in the shelter, we have limited resources. We have to um, prioritize animals that are easy to get out the door and easy to adopt and are not going to put that kind of stress on a family and not going to put that kind of risk out in the community. Um, and and then once we have a home for every single one of those animals, then we can take the next step up and go, okay, 
Now let's work on getting these tougher cases into homes. Um, and again, there's a difference between animals that are already in a home and shelter animals. So if I go into a home, like I mentioned earlier, with a dedicated um, a dedicated family that wants to help resolve a tough behavior issue, um, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm not going to recommend euthanasia. But if that same animal that maybe has an injurious bite history comes into a shelter, we have a responsibility not to put that onto another owner because that's a really, really heavy responsibility. Um, so there's a big difference again between owned animals and animals that are in a shelter that do not have a guardian there to speak for them or advocate for them. We have to advocate for them. And sometimes that means making a tough decision about their welfare and the welfare of the, the shelter in the community. So, you know, I guess, again, in summary, we just don't feel like the hill to die on right now with healthy adoptable animals being euthanized is these really tough medical and behavioral cases. The low hanging fruit is animals that could be easily placed into a home, fit right in, be safe, healthy pets. Um, and that needs to be, those need to be the animals that are getting the majority of the resources first. Um, do you, either of you guys have anything that you wanted to add on that? I was going to say that I think that generally means doing a lot of coalition building for these shelters, because as we all know, in Denver, there aren't a ton of dogs like my dog Barley, who came into the shelter wagging tail. He was up on the adoption floor within hours of turning into the shelter because he was behaviorally and physically really sound. We don't get a ton of those. So that right. means that DFL, our adoption floor, at least when I was there, was often largely made up from dogs that were coming in from Oklahoma and Texas. Um, not New necessarily Mexico. dogs that were coming in from a couple miles away from the shelter. Um, yeah. yeah, and this is a whole other can of worms, but I think that also ties into my opinion about bringing in things like Korean meat dogs or Mexican street dogs. I would much rather focus on litters of puppies in Georgia or Texas, um, rural Kentucky. Dakota or wherever <laughs> that really need help. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before we start bringing in dogs from, you know, international or we start necessarily looking at, you know, that dog that I talked about earlier that put stitches in the kid. Um, I think there's, there, there are some different levels of where we need to be fo focusing our energy first. Um, and we're seeing a lot of semi-feral dogs in the Denver area coming in from, you know, again, Mexico, um, New Mexico, or even overseas. And I think I agree. I think that's a great point. Like semi-feral dogs are different than mm -hmm. homeless pet yes. dogs. Yeah. That, like, yeah. I'm currently in Panama right now and I can't tell you how many dogs I've run into where like I'm like trying to interact with them maybe and they're just like... Hmm. I don't Why? know. My mom didn't need you people. My grandma didn't need you people. Like I'm a strong, independent street dog, and they like no affiliative behavior no, from these yeah. dogs. And they seem pretty well adjusted here, but we've all seen them in the shelter where you know they don't know how to deal with shiny floors. They don't know how to deal with stairs. They're terrified of being in a container. And these dogs kind of go from being kind of fine on the street mm -hmm. to alligator rolling and defecating on themselves in fear mm -hmm. in the shelter. And again, this is kind of a whole other can of, can of worms as far as like the international dogs but I think it does tie into this idea that like life above all else um, and I personally seeing a lot of these street dogs have a lot of issue with pulling them off the streets and then trying to get them adopted out yeah and I think um, you know 
I think it it really speaks to a cultural perception that we have as Americans that dogs are pets, dogs are house pets, you know, that are supposed to be sleeping on the couch. My Border Collie mix zip is currently asleep on our big leather chair right now. (laughs) And I think that's the picture we have in our mind of dogs is that they are pets Um, because here in America, Uh, in the United States, they largely are pet dogs. They're companion animals. Whereas um, in other parts of the world where we're pulling these animals from, that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. Um, They are almost more like, um, well, they're feral in a a lot of places and they're not anybody's pet and they're not living in someone's house. Um, So I think that's a cultural perception that we maybe need to step back and examine is, are we bringing these animals in from places and trying to pigeonhole them into this pet dog, companion dog role when they're not really fit for it? Yeah. And so we really should be focusing on the pet companion dogs in this country that need homes first. Yeah. Um, the ones that, that are generations of um, companion dogs uh, that will do well in a home as opposed to dogs that have genes. never seen the inside of a home. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. So, so um, what do we want to see in a, in a good shelter, Marissa? Yeah. So we're going to wrap up the episode by listing out a few things that we'd like to see in shelters. I mean, I think we've sort of sprinkled it out throughout the episode, but we would just want to give you a list of the things we'd like to see. So um, Ursa mentioned this earlier in terms of having a um, skilled expert behavior staff. Uh, so we were talking about, uh, having a standardized approach to assessing and diagnosing health and behavior issues or lack thereof. Um, And we also would like to see comprehensive medical care and triage. I think the same goes with behavior. Um, so for Dumb Friends League, we take on a lot of behavior concerns and we're, we're really proud of the behavior department. However, there are some things that are just not great at modifying within the shelter. Um, and so we reach out to other organizations that have different, more comprehensive programs than ours, such as uh, Humane Society of Boulder Valley. Or we'll reach out to other rescue groups that are foster based so we can get those animals into a home environment in order to help uh, begin that modification journey. Um, We also want to have, you know, educated and honest adoption counselors that will disclose potential issues to adopters. This is hugely important because there have been so many cases throughout our country that have, um, not disclose previous information for fear that the animal wouldn't be adopted. And then the animal went went out into the community and did significant damage, sending people to the hospital. So this is really important that if you cannot be honest about the dog's behavior, uh, that we, that you might need to reconsider whether or not you're placing that animal out into the community. We also want thoughtful euthanasia decisions of animals with untreatable medical or behavior conditions. And again, that's going to look really different based on your community, your resources, the staff that you have, and um, the population of animals coming into your facility. We'd love to see, and we are seeing in Metro Denver area, which is awesome, and, and all over Colorado, actually, collaboration between shelters and rescues. I am proud to live in Colorado, and I'm proud to be a part of this community that collaborates so well. Other states have just been blown away saying, wow, we never talked to our neighboring shelters. And if we did truly collaborate and work together, we could make so much impact that way. And I'm seeing it in Colorado. Um, And then lastly, 
we would like to see us, uh, what's called and what we're trying to present as a movement, socially conscious sheltering. Um, we're going to be linking to, we're going to be linking this to, to the show notes. Um, what this is, is the entire community coming together to support the intake and outcome of animals. And so that includes the local veterinarians. That includes um, behavior trainers and professionals in the field. That includes the media. That includes animal shelters. Um, so it's, it's taking everyone, including animal control, police department, city officials, um, folks that are in charge of legislation. So all of us coming together as a collaborative united front to help support the animals. We, this industry has been operating in silos for many years. And we are now, like I said earlier in the Metro Denver area, we are collaborating really well. And we are, we are having more live outcomes and creating more life-saving programs for these animals. And so we, we have to put our egos aside and collaborate together and not just um, lean on ourselves to make all the impact possible. It doesn't happen without collaboration. And so socially conscious sheltering is, you know, removing the villainizing and it's it's creating collaboration in a way that is um, holistic and and sustainable. So we'll link to some images and some information about that in the show notes because we, we really stand for that and we're seeing the impacts of that working. All right. So to recap, we talked a little bit about what has happened at the Pueblo Animal Shelter, which is the impetus for why we wanted to record this episode. And then we talked about the following challenges with no kill as we see it. So the challenges with the no kill movement um, include not being open admission, potentially warehousing animals, adopting out dangerous animals or animals with significant medical concerns that the community or the adopter is not ready for. Um, villainizing of shelters that are making tough decisions about dogs and cats that are coming in with significant medical or behavior issues. And that it potentially is not the hill to die on right now, as in there are other animals that um, are going to be better pets and better suited for adoption that we should be focusing our efforts on as a community instead. We then talked about um, what we would like to see in the sheltering community moving forward. Some of the things that we talked about included having a standardized approach to assessing health and behavior issues in animals, having comprehensive medical care, having educated and qualified behavior staff, having honest adoption counselors to help owners um, figure out what animals are going to be best for their homes and honestly disclose any potential issues. Making sure that shelters are performing thoughtful euthanasia of animals that need it collaborating between the shelters and rescues of all stripes within the community and as Marizzo was talking about the socially conscious sheltering. So thank you so much for joining us. I am Kayla Fratt. I am the owner of Journey Dog Training and you can find everything you need to know about me and my business at journeydogtraining.com. And I'm Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado. And you can find me online at pauseandreward.com. I'm Ursa Acri. I'm the co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training, and you can find us online at canismajortraining.com. All right. And before we go, be sure to subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. If you write or relieve a review for us, it really, really helps other people find the podcast, and we might even read your review on our next episode. You can always find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. That is canine all spelled out. 
This episode is sponsored by K9 of Mine, which is letter K number mine of mine.com. You can always contact us at hello at canineconvos.com. We would love to hear from you. Our theme music is called Funny Song, and it's provided royalty-free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk, and our logo is from Walker Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. Bye!